All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour for making this show economically viable. They are Airway Energy, Aravista Gold, Blue Sky Uranium, Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, Northern Free Gold, and Riverside Resources, and... I am forgetting one of our sponsors, and I'm sure my wife will tell me who it is. Uh, but in any event, um, yes. Uh, in any event, I am really delighted to have John Butler uh, with us. Uh, John Butler was with us a few weeks back, and uh, he's written an excellent book called The Golden Revolution. I think John has some, some excellent insights into, um, let's say, the geopolitical and economic forces that are in play right now that are that are driving markets and uh, potentially driving us back uh, to or forward to some sort of a, a gold-backed uh, system, a monetary system again. Um, I'm not going to read John's uh, bio. It's, it's a very strong, uh, a very admirable bio. It is posted on our website at Voice America, uh, our website at Voice America Business Channel. Uh, but, but I do want to tell... Um, Again, to let you know uh, and to emphasize uh, the book, it's uh, The Golden Revolution, and you can pick it up uh, through the normal channels. Uh, welcome, John. Good to have you back. Thanks, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Um, well, you, you might have heard some of what Dominic Frisbee had to say. Were you listening in? I caught the last five minutes, I believe, yes. Yeah, he's he's not uh, he's not quite so sure that that he uh, he wants the markets to decide uh, what we do, you know, how what sort of a shape our monetary system is in, and I guess that would be sort of in keeping with Ron Paul's view that he'd like to rather than uh, just say let's go back to a gold standard right away, let's let's let the markets decide. I guess get a, get rid of um, uh, you know the laws that re, that uh, prohibit gold from being money. Uh, and and have gold compete with uh, with the dollar. What are your thoughts on well, that idea? Well, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I think that many people who support gold-backed money uh, simply have faith that were the free market allowed uh, to work its magic, were were individuals allowed to work their magic through voluntary exchange in the marketplace rather than dictated use of money and dictated interest rates on that money, etc., um, that gold would emerge as the predominant money, perhaps not the exclusive money, and uh, history, in fact, suggests that gold has always competed in some way with silver and other potential 
media of exchange. Um, so I think there's a lot of overlap between those who believe in a free market money and those who believe in gold specifically because the two historically have overlapped, and there's so much evidence for that. So I think Ron Paul, in a way, uh, has the stronger argument in that he simply pushes for the free market to decide what money should be. But it's clear in his writings and that of others that many people who believe that the free market should be deciding this matter um, also believe that the matter would be decided with gold emerging in the dominant position. And that's kind of my position as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, uh, if uh, in Chapter 6 of your book you um, you say that there are there is a growing body of evidence, in fact, that the groundwork is already being laid behind the scenes for a move away from fiat uh, towards gold. Uh, could you share with our listeners what some of that evidence is? The evidence is primarily international. If you look at what's happening within the United States specifically, you really don't see the government taking actions that suggest that they're preparing for any potential return to a gold standard. Um, But when you look abroad, the evidence is not just sort of here and there. It's actually becoming rather overwhelming. You've got a substantial number of countries, including the largest trading partners of the United States, including the largest trading partners of the EU and the euro area, who are making preparations it seems, to prepare for a return to some form of gold-backed international money. And I must stress that point, international money. My book does not make the case that there is any near-term inevitable move back to gold being used as a domestic money in the United States or elsewhere. But when it comes to international trade, you're seeing a breakdown in many relationships internationally, and you're seeing many exporting countries taking specific actions that would, in principle, be necessary for them to be able to exchange their exports, be it oil or manufactured goods or whatever, for gold. They're, they're, They're laying the infrastructure. And this includes China, it includes Russia, it includes, to a lesser extent, Brazil and India, but it includes a number of important countries, including the oil exporters themselves. So this is definitely a force uh, that is, I believe, gaining momentum uh, going forward. Uh, we There was some, I, I believe that Iran, uh, if I understood, understand what happened, uh, you know, the, in, the United States uh, tried to block Iran from the international uh, payment mechanism that's used by countries to pay, to move money around globally. And uh, I heard at least, there was a, a rumor at least, that Iran then was uh, uh, demanding gold uh, from China, perhaps, to pay for the oil that China uh, picked up from Iran. Is that does that ring true to you? Well, I, I mean, I don't have any special intelligence information in that regard, but where there's smoke, there's fire, and you see a lot of evidence of gold flows. When you look at gold flows between Turkey and Dubai, which are a proxy for gold flows between Turkey and Iran, you see something very significant happening. Now, most Americans, and in fact, most people around the world are not aware that of all countries in the Middle Eastern region, Turkey is by far the largest uh, depository 
for gold bullion by far, an order of magnitude above everybody else. And when there is an unusually large gold flow out of Turkey into another part of the Middle East, it suggests something very, very significant going on. And Dubai is known as sort of the Singapore, as it were, of the Gulf region. It's an area that funnels a lot of wealth from region to region. And so when gold is moving from Turkey to Dubai, you have to ask yourself, where is it going and why? Mm-hmm. Well, it happens to coincide with these sanctions against Iran. And so really it is, I mean, for those who you know care to connect the dots here, there's, there's a fairly straightforward case to be made that Iran has taken physical delivery of a huge amount of gold previously stored in Turkey because it needs to mobilize it. Well, mobilize it for what? It's using it to pay for imports. Of course, it exports gold, but then it uh, it exports oil, excuse me, and it imports gold from others, but it's using gold as an active medium of exchange for day-to-day transactions with its trading partners because the United States has simply shut it out of the global payment system. Now, I don't want to suggest that Iran is... You know, the good guy in this and the U.S. is, you know, the bad guy. The fact is, however, is that there is a confrontation taking place between Iran, the United States, and a handful of other countries. But interestingly, this conflict is catalyzing a de facto remonetization of gold for international trade, for some of the most essential commodities that we all use. And this lesson is not going to be lost on essentially all countries around the world. They are watching this intently to see the importance of gold as an alternative if and when, for whatever reason, you might have a dispute with the United States or you might have reason to need to avoid uh, the banking system in some way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, why Turkey? Why has Turkey been such a, a, a great depository for gold? There's two reasons for that, one of which is the fact that Turkey at one point had an empire, which was the empire that encompassed essentially all of the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire, uh, geographically, of course, was enormous, and it created links which uh, were, well, I mean, by our standards, primitive financial links, but they persist to this day. And Turkey, however, for its own specific cultural reasons, is perceived in the Middle East as a relatively sort of neutral territory. It's a secular country. It doesn't have a specifically Islamist government, and for that matter, it doesn't have any specifically religious government. It's a, it's a very commercial state in comparison to a number of other Middle Eastern countries, and that is seen as a you know, sort of net plus for those who are looking for a financial jurisdiction which is neutral and will stay out of regional conflicts. And indeed, Turkey always has stayed out of regional conflicts. All the various wars between all the various Middle Eastern countries in modern times have not included Turkey as a primary belligerent, and so it's kind of seen as neutral territory. Now, Lebanon, historically, was also seen as neutral territory, but it's a small country incapable of defending itself, whereas Turkey has, I believe, one of the largest five militaries in the world by manpower and has been increasing its technological edge as well in military hardware in recent years. So it's also in a position to 
will defend itself, which of course you you presumably if you're storing gold somewhere, you would want you know the 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 country storing it to be able to defend itself. So Turkey occupies this position for good reasons. Well, I'm wondering uh, when it, getting back to Iran, um, the Iranians seem to be aligned more closely, certainly with Russia and with China. Uh, two other countries you mentioned that are big on on owning gold. Um, do you think? Uh, how do you think that shakes out? Do you think? Do you think the Iranians? Uh, to what extent do you think the Chinese and the Russians would become involved if the U.S. decided to get involved militarily uh, with Iran? Well, now this is. I mean, this is very hypothetical, and I'm not a national security expert, but there are certain lessons from uh, historical experience and contemporary geopolitical rivalries and issues that we can apply here. And the fact of the matter is, China and Russia have not been this close to each other since they were arguably in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, mm-hmm. when they were, you know, when, when, when Mao's China was fighting a you know Chiang Kai-shek led army mm-hmm. which was itself, which was financed by the United States so they had mm-hmm. they had very clear reasons to be aligned following the second world war but oddly enough they've really cozied up together in recent years mm-hmm. for different reasons which are more commercial in nature china is a manufacturing powerhouse russia is an energy powerhouse and they have a natural reason to trade with each other and to try in principle to get along with each other as a result and so you've got you know this brick uh, arrangement Brazil mm-hmm. Russia India China which holds regular summits which is setting up its own financial infrastructure and which is a direct challenge and I'm not exaggerating now it is a direct challenge to the legacy of the US hegemony post-World War II, and that includes, of course, monetary hegemony. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these countries are organized and cooperating in a way that we simply have not seen for an awfully long time. And, of course, their share of the global economy has grown. If you add up the BRICS together, their share of the global economy is now surpassing that of the United States. Mm-hmm. So not only are they collaborating, but they also hold a huge weight of economic power far more than they used to yeah so the fact that they're acting in a similar way vis-a-vis iran they all support iran they all disapprove of u.s policy towards iran mm-hmm. and again i don't want to suggest that iran is somehow you know the good guy here yeah. but the fact of the matter is if you look at the balance of power around the world it is shifting towards oddly enough support of countries like Iran that occasionally, for whatever reason, choose to confront the United States. And if gold is being used as a currency in that confrontation, then it is yet another way in which gold is being de facto re-monetized and the dollar, in contrast, demonetized internationally in a way that Americans in general do not appreciate. Uh, let's. Uh, so, if I understand what you're saying, um, I think I under- hear you saying that that block, the BRIC countries, could in fact be almost forcing a gold monetary system. I mean, through their power, they their their joint economic power. Then I wasn't aware that they were collectively larger than the U.S. Uh, economy. But that's that's 
that's big, and that means that they are in a position to thumb their nose at any kind of uh, suggestion that, you know, um, to Iran or someone else that you guys better uh, better accept dollars or we're going to bomb the hell out of you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it, let, let's hope it doesn't come to that. But let's go back. Let's go back to when the United States was a clear de facto monetary hegemon mm-hmm. under Bretton Woods, mm-hmm. when the dollar really was, you know, the 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 currency of the world, bar none. You know, that it, that was it after the Second World War. Sure. Now the thing is. Things have changed an awful lot in the interim because these BRIC countries, of course, um, once upon a time, I mean, they were economic basket cases, of course. The Soviet Union was its own autarkic, you know, largely autarkic empire, um, which did not trade in a material way with the rest of the world. I mean, China was devastated after the Second World War. Many people don't appreciate that an awful lot of the Second World War was fought between Japan and China. Long before Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, they were bombing China. And so China was a real mess economically as well. In any event, um, the fact is they have emerged. Emerging markets eventually emerge. And all of these economies are now far more healthy and powerful. Don't get me wrong. They're not perfect, but they're far more healthy and powerful than they used to be. And you have a situation now where, you know, in some respects, you know, they are far more dynamic economies than the United States because they're freer in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have lower tax rates in general. Um, and, of course, their interests are, are beginning to overlap because they simply trade with each other so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you have an odd situation now where a huge portion of the, uh, of the global economy has simply changed its fundamental nature so much. And the United States has gone from being a monetary hegemon to being just another big, important country. And the idea is, at this point then, if they in theory are kind of becoming a bit more equal, well then why on earth should one of them be able to dictate monetary terms right. to the other? Right. right. In fact, those who export... They're the ones who hold the cards. Uh-huh. Because if you import, then, of course, you need to pay for those imports with something. Well, what is that something going to be? It's a credit card of some kind, but is it going to be plastic? Is it going to be paper? Or is it going to be gold? At the end of the day, if you want to import from someone who exports, you will have to pay them in the money they want to be paid in. And there are lots of signs, as we've discussed behind the scenes, that the BRICs are laying the groundwork to be paid in gold. And the United States and other importing countries are either going to have to (laughs) make the gold available or they themselves are going to have to become more competitive economically so they become the exporters. Yeah, so far, uh, growing out of that Bretton Woods uh, position of strength that you talked about, the U.S. uh, has been able to print dollars, create dollars out of nothing, and use them for goods that we import from China and elsewhere. We've been the major... Uh, we are a huge importer, of course. We don't make any. Well, it's, it's, we do make some things, but we are we are much more of a consuming nation than a producing nation. We uh, we have huge balance of trades uh, uh, deficits. Uh, I mean, I don't know when the last time we had a, a trade surplus in the U.S. So we are clearly uh, at some point in time. Then, are you suggesting that this piece of paper, this uh, fantasy money that we create out of nothing? 
uh, will be seen as fantasy money and not as the real thing, and that just as de Gaulle said, give me the real thing back in 71, and we said, to hell with you, de Gaulle, we're the United States of America, we, uh, we are the victors of World War II, we can do what we damn well please. Do you think the rest of the world, and so as I hear what you're saying, perhaps the BRIC countries are, are gaining so much strength at some point in time, if we want to sell anything to them or want to buy anything from them, I should say, we're going to have to give them the real thing? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's the whole point is that, I mean, as you say, Jay, the world has changed a lot from 1971. You know, France challenged the United States already in the mid-1960s. De Gaulle made his first provocative comments against Bretton Woods, against dollar hegemony. And by 1971, it all broke down. Okay, so France, I mean, think about it. France, not exactly the most important country in the world, challenges the United States gets a handful of European countries on its side, and breaks Bretton Woods down, demolishes Bretton Woods by 1971. It took them six years. Not that they knew how long it would take, not that it was a master plan, but you know that was the, that's the way it played out. Well, look where we are today. You have, as we discussed, these BRIC countries, who collectively are a larger economy than the United States, who trade with each other more than the United States, who are collectively net exporters to the United States, all agreeing that they no longer want to use the dollar as their primary medium of exchange, that they all prefer gold. And they have announced at various meetings over the past couple of years specific plans to try to bring that about. It won't take six years this time. It might take three. It might take two. It might take one. Things are happening even faster today, and there's a general lack of appreciation within the United States that this is happening. The government, for whatever reason, doesn't talk about it, and well, why should they, I suppose? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's frightening for them, and they don't want the American people to understand sure. that the dollar is on such shaky foundations, so they don't even talk about it. One would hope they're planning behind the scenes that the rest of the world might, or much of the rest of the world, might begin to use some form of gold-backed money for international trade, imports, and exports. You do have a handful of people like Jim Rickards who are sounding the alarm and who I believe do have connections to the government. Uh, let's hope they're having some influence because if, if the United States is blindsided by this, it will make 2008, it will make the you know, supposedly greatest financial crisis ever in modern times look like a storm in a teacup. Yeah. One thing, uh, the United States, though, if we were to go, if we were forced to go back onto some sort of a gold standard, in theory at least, has a lot of gold. In theory at least, if the 261 million ounces or something like that, I think it's supposed to be, uh, is really in the possession of the United States and owned by the United States, we should be in the driver's seat, should we not, for doing that? Even though it would curtail growth, uh, or, or let's say curtail our, our consumption, our imports, uh, first of all, I guess what I'm getting at, do you believe that the United States has all the gold we say we have? Uh, do you have a view on that? And secondly, uh, wouldn't we be in a strong, stronger position than most countries if we had to go back on a gold standard? Right. The first question is one that I find I, I find difficult to answer. I, I really, I, I don't have any special information or evidence regarding whether the U.S. does or does not have the gold it claims to have. Now, what I will say is that there are a number of people who believe that the United States probably does not have the gold it claims to have, and they do have arguments that are at a, at a minimum worth considering. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that said, I don't think they have proof of anything, but you don't need proof. And when it comes to money, money... Money is one of those things, right? It's a confidence game. And if you even begin to doubt that perhaps the U.S. does not have all the gold it claims to have, and gold is being re-monetized internationally, well, then right then and there, you should be concerned, even if you don't have proof. So I guess my my sort of answer to that is, I don't know, is the short answer. And the long answer is, because I don't know, I really want to know. Yeah. And I would encourage people to try to find out, you know, whatever information they can mm-hmm. on that topic of whether or not the U.S. You know, has the monetary gold it claims to have. Now, regarding the second point, does assuming the U.S. does have a, a, this massive hoard of, of gold reserves, does that put the U.S. in a in a dominant position, in a privileged position, as it were, in the event that the uh, world moves back to a gold standard? And the short answer to that one is absolutely not. At current prices, the entire U.S. gold reserve would be exhausted, i.e. given away, to pay for imports within one year. (laughs) United States imports so much more from the rest of the world than it exports that it would exhaust its entire gold reserve in one year at current prices. At $1,600, now. Yeah, that's right. Current prices of dollars and gold. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. there are two ways to change that. Number one, stop importing, something which would cause a severe economic hardship uh, in the U.S. were it to happen all in one quick adjustment process. Or two, allow the price of gold to rise. If the price of gold rises sufficiently, it will cover a larger amount of imports. Now, there's no magic wand here, of course, as the price of gold rises, the price of a lot of commodities will rise. But at a minimum, if the price of gold is allowed to rise, it should allow for a higher degree of overall import cover for the United States, and it would ease the transition. So in my opinion, if the United States is confronted with a world, perhaps led by the BRICS, who demands payment for their exports in gold, the U.S. will, from that point forward, be very supportive of a rise in the gold price. Only. Um, and they'll, they'll you know, market that, they'll cloak that in whatever language politically they have to, but they'll suddenly become very supportive of a higher gold price. They will champion it. Politicians will say, this is a good idea. We want the price of gold to go up. You know, this will help to create jobs, you know, whatever language they will choose. They'll choose language along those lines. But be under no illusions. They'll be doing it under duress. They'll be doing it because it's not their first choice. They'll be doing it because the power of the printing press that they have abused for decades is being taken away from them, and they have no other choice. Okay, so let's suppose uh, at sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars, you got one year of imports. Uh, how many years do we need? Five, ten? And then you would multiply the price by that or some combination of less imports and higher gold price, I guess, could be uh, get you to the same place. Well, it's a question of how you, you know, want this to play out. I mean, uh, if, if it were up to me and I were uh, whoever, the Treasury Secretary or something like that, and someone came to me and said, look, John, we now have to manage this transition, how would you recommend managing this transition, I would say, okay, this is the deal. Um, We need to accept the writing on the wall here, which is now coming to fruition, and we have to position ourselves for a world which is moving 
essentially entirely, it would seem, back to using gold to settle a balance of payments, exports and imports. Okay, so do we want to sort it out in one year or do we want to sort it out over five years or ten years? I would recommend allowing the price of gold to rise, driven basically by the free market, and I would say, look, we have all this gold, and we embrace, henceforth, a gold-backed global currency for settling imports and exports. When I say global currency, I don't, I don't mean controlled by a global central bank or anything like that. I just mean a currency which is fungible globally for imports and exports. So we embrace that. We think it's fine. Um, so we're willing to allow the gold price to rise, let the free market set that price, and Americans take note. This gold reserve we have is only going to cover imports for so long. It may cover us for a couple years. It may cover us for five years. But the fact is we must now reorient our economy in a way which is competitive. We must set ourselves up to, at a minimum, be in balance, exports versus imports. And, in fact, ideally, you could say that maybe someday we should start exporting again. Why not? The yeah. vast history of the United States of America was as an exporting nation. Was the United States weak because it was an exporter? No, it was strong. Was it a moral country because it was an exporter? Yes. Was it a beacon to the world of what you could achieve through innovation, hard work, thrift, and so on? Yes. All of that was associated with exporting. All of it was associated with a gold or bimetallic standard, as it were, in the United States. Why shouldn't we go back to that? I would fully embrace it if it yeah. were up to me. Indeed, indeed, John. Uh, we are basically out of time. I, I, one quick question I'd like to ask you about, something that's come up recently. Uh, some interest within Germany. You talk about confidence being so important. Some interest within Germany, I understand, is requiring that the gold that the German government holds uh, uh, owns is held in France. They'd like that gold to be brought back into Germany. And I understand the same wish for some gold that the Germans own that's held in, in New York or in, in the U.S., any thoughts about that? Are you are you familiar with those rumors? Well, I have been following it, and I, I actually think it's getting beyond rumors at this point. I uh -huh. think that, in fact, um, you have some pretty credible uh, statements and reporting now that Germany will, at a minimum, confirm that the gold that is being held in custody in foreign locations uh, be audited in a way that, for example, the United States apparently refuses to audit its own gold. So Germany is, is, is at a minimum going to perform what appears to be a thorough audit. And I think that's, that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, if, if your gold were held abroad, you would want to take a periodic audit of it to make sure that it was, was, in, was in safe custody. So that, that's entirely reasonable. Um, but it's odd in a way how it has come about. It's come about in part because the euro crisis has led to such tremendous monetary uncertainty in the euro area that Germans are starting to wonder whether, if all hell breaks loose, they might actually need their country's gold yeah. to help get them through that crisis. It simply highlights the tremendous historical importance that gold plays during times of financial crises and economic hardship. And that is a message that will resonate the world over. John, thank you so much for being with us again. You have so much to say. I would tell people buy the book, The Golden Revolution. It lays out a lot of the things, a lot more than what John had time to tell us today. 
buy that book, read it. And John, is there a website where people go? You also provide some very good ins, uh, some essays on the economy, various economic issues. What is that website where people can go to follow that? My company is called Amphora Capital, and our website is www.amphora, that is A-M-P-H-O-R-A dash alpha dot com. And that's where we keep a, um, a, you know, the archive, as it were, of my regular newsletter, mm-hmm. uh, which elaborates on these and other topics uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, very excellent. And we uh, we could we could spend the whole show just talking about uh, a couple of those essays or one of those essays. Thank you so much, John, for being with us again. It's greatly appreciated your insights into what's going on, and so much more to ask you. We'll have to have you back again if you're willing to come back. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Jay. uh, Okay, John. Thanks so much. Uh, Folks, don't go away. We're going to be with Gregory Beicher. He's the president and CEO of Millrock Resources. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Our Vista Gold Corporation's principal asset is the Dewey Project, which currently has a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be one of the last undeveloped, low-grade, bulk tonnage potential super pits in Quebec. The Dewey Project has significant potential to further grow the resource by both step-out drilling as well as further infill drilling within the existing porphyry. Our Vista has a well-designed, extensive 35,000-meter 100-hole drill program planned for Q4 2012, with results expected in early 2013 and an updated resource estimate to follow. Our Vista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA. For further details, please visit www.arvistagold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host Jay Taylor. 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, it really was interesting listening to John Butler talk about uh, gold. Uh, and I know that he has talked about the need, the inevitability of moving back to a gold-backed monetary system and the need for that price of gold to be somewhere uh, in excess of $10,000 an ounce. He didn't talk about it this week. We didn't get around to talking about it, but I know in talking to him in the past, and he went through some of the economics, some of the numbers, why the gold price would need to be so much higher. Otherwise, the U.S. would burn through its gold reserves in one single year, the way we're importing and so forth now. Well, the reason I bring that up now, uh, I'm very pleased to have Gregory Beicher, he's the president and CEO of Millrock Resources, and the reason I bring that up is because Millrock is in the hunt for gold, for sure. Not only gold, uh, copper as well, but uh, they are employing the project generator model, which I think is the best model for investors because you avoid the heavy dilution that you see with most companies, and uh, you have a, a, a whole host of portfolio of projects, one of which uh, is likely or has a good chance of at least one of them coming through, and you get other people to spend the money to uh, to do the, uh, the, the risky drilling and exploration work. So uh, it's really good to have... Uh, Gregory with me again. I should mention before we get going that uh, Millrock was trading today at about 30 cents. Uh, it's got, uh, I believe now after a financing, it's just uh, done a small financing. It's got about 78 million shares. Give it a market cap of about $23 million. You can buy it in the United States under the symbol MLRKF. That's over-the-counter in the U.S., MLRKF, although today the markets aren't trading in the U.S. They are trading in Canada. You can buy it there under the symbol MRO. Welcome, Gregory. Good to have you back again. Oh, thanks very much, Jay. I'm glad to be here. It's really uh, good to have you. Uh, you have some strategic investors. One that uh, Altius Minerals, which I, I know very well, been a very successful project generator company in their own right. Uh, they are an investor in in your company, and I know the people behind Altius love the project generator model, made them wealthy, and they obviously have some confidence in your leadership and the potential for Millrock to do the same. Talk to us a little bit about Altius. Right. I think, you know, arguably they are the most successful uh, project generator company of all time, and we are doing our very best to follow precisely in their footsteps and hopefully uh, recreate and have just as much success as they have done. And I look at it, you know, and they really, really rigorously applied the business model, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we raise a little bit of money by selling shares from time to time in our company, but we leverage that uh, probably about tenfold uh, by convincing other mining companies to invest in our project ideas. We give up a portion of our project, uh, but we uh, don't uh, uh, burn our treasury up uh, on really risky drill holes. Yeah, indeed. And you, so you are two. Uh, you're involved in two basic areas. One is Arizona for copper. The other is uh, the other is Alaska for gold and copper. Uh, what do you? What? What? Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in uh, Alaska, and do you have any drill results to report or anything investors might be looking forward to from this drill season in Alaska? 
Sure. You know, we've uh, been quite active uh, in, in Alaska all summer. We have re- uh, announced uh, results from our summer drill programs. We had some uh, good exploration success on our Estelle Gold Project, which is a joint venture with Tech Corporation, and uh, had also some good gold intersections on our Council Gold Project, a joint venture with Kinross, and we'll be following up on those in, in 2013. But for now, uh, we're busy down in Arizona, uh, where InMet is a partner on uh, several different projects, copper projects primarily there, and uh, hopefully we'll be drilling again in, in January uh, on, on that one. Uh, so the, the overall idea between the two jurisdictions is to always have a drill turning on one project or the other, always the possibility of making uh, the, the discovery that will send our stock price shooting upwards. Yeah, we need to see uh, some justification for the stock prices shooting up towards these days. They don't just go because somebody uh, has got some hot air that they're uh, expelling. But basically, you guys, uh, I would say, with the kind of partners you have and the kind of money you're uh, that are being put in there, I mean, Valet is a huge company. They are one of your major partners, are they not, in Arizona? Uh, no, in, in Alaska, actually. Oh, in Alaska, okay. Uh, at present, yeah. But uh, yeah, just to show the uh, the leverage, you know, our overall exploration budget by the end of the year for 2012 uh, will be roughly 11 million dollars expended uh, in total, but only 800 thousand of that coming from Millrock's treasury. So, it, uh, you know, we, we're really able to uh, uh, maximize uh, every single dollar that uh, our shareholders give us. The last time we did a financing was way back in early 2010 for just a couple of million dollars. We've been able to stretch that $2 million out almost uh, three years. Oh, that's uh, that's remarkable, but that's that's the project generator model. Talk to us, though, about your partners in Alaska. Do you is, is Tech there with you? Yes, Tech is a joint venture partner on the Estelle Gold Project. Uh, as mentioned, we had uh, some pretty good success uh, this year, uh, uh, an intersection of over 100 meters in width uh, in excess of one gram per ton gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think we know where that zone goes, and uh, we'll, we'll be drilling it again next year. Uh, oh. uh, it's the only downside to Alaska is a relatively short uh, field season for early-stage exploration. But again, and we why. balance that seasonality uh, by exploring in other jurisdictions in the southwest U.S. Well, there you go. So Arizona and InMet, I believe, is your major partner in Arizona, or, or a major partner, right? Yeah, that's correct. Another uh, huge company. Yeah, they're, they're, they're great explorers and a great mining company, and uh, copper is their, their main uh, focus. And, uh, of course, the, the great copper mining camps of southeast Arizona are, are great hunting grounds. Uh, we have to look deeper. The easy ones are gone, but we're using uh, you know the best available technology and our imaginations and, and uh, have the backing of a company like InMet uh, that's not afraid to drill some deep holes to test our, our theories. Uh, this is sort of a hypothetical question, but let's say an inmet is not looking for a tiny deposit. What sort of uh, a range of, of uh, let's say, uh, size or, or value of a deposit would you think of, would interest an inmet, or what would be too what would be too small for an inmet? Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, uh, anything uh, less than a billion tons uh, is, is uh, not going to be uh, of, of interest. Uh, look, you know, porphyries uh, can be huge deposits and uh, worth worth billions of dollars, uh, but they're they're high capex projects, and uh, you, you don't 
you just don't develop small ones where we're looking for the big ones. You know, I think the discovery of the resolution deposit in Arizona really changed people's views. Uh, it's a, you know, an exceptional deposit, high grade, uh, but it's deep, and uh, it's going to take some, some great mining efforts to extract that, but it's worth billions and billions of dollars. And so that's the sort of things uh, that we're looking for, uh, multi-billion uh, 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 tons of uh, copper ore. So in that, uh, I believe, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe on this monsoon project, for example, can earn 70% of that uh, of that project. Is that the agreement? Yeah, and that's the typical sort of deal we do where it's a, an option to joint venture. So they spend money over a period of years, pay us a modest amount of cash over a period of years, and if they go all the way, uh, then they own up uh, uh, owning uh, 70% of the project. Now, I should point out that, you know, Millrock is the operator of all our joint efforts with these major mining companies. We uh, take a, a modest uh, uh, management fee, uh, which really helps us uh, offset our overhead, uh, another sure. reason why we don't constantly have to go back to the market to raise money for just to cover our overhead costs. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've got um, the San Jose and, and Dry Mountain project. Is that, uh, is that one you're joint venturing, or is that still in your, uh, in your portfolio only? Yep, that's uh, presently under uh, uh, an option agreement within Met also. Oh, it is, okay. Yep. And so what you try to do, though, and, and going back to your uh, council project, and I believe that one you're still holding, you said, on your own, right? No, that, that one's uh, in uh, an option agreement uh, with uh, Kinross. Oh, with Kinross, okay, good, excellent. All right. All right, so, I mean, the point is here that uh, if – if InMet finds something big, that uh, you've got 30% of whatever that big thing is, and you've got a market cap uh, that is $23 million that might be compared to, I don't know what InMet's market cap might be. It might be $23 billion for all I know. It's, it's a big number anyway. It's probably not that big, but it's a big market cap. And the point is the leverage is absolutely huge. Now it's hard to know what the probability of your success uh, will be, but um, but there's some possibility that one of these things will hit and then – uh, your share price is going to take care of itself. Right. You know, Jay, mineral exploration, uh, as you well know, is a, a very risky business, and especially uh, in the part that we pursue, which is the earlier stage exploration. The reality is uh, most exploration projects aren't going to work out, but it just takes one, and our model is a way of really uh, decreasing the risk by, by having 10, 12, 14 operating exploration projects at any one time, mostly using uh, money that's coming from other mining companies. Your website so people can follow your progress. Of course, they can subscribe to my newsletter because Millrock is a recommendation in my letter. I'll put a plug in for myself. But uh, for people that want to follow your work, the website is what, Gregory? Sure. It's www.millrockresources.com. Millrockresources.com. And I, I suppose you'll be at some of these conferences. I'll probably catch up with you in San Francisco or someplace like that right. in the near we'll, future. We'll be uh, um, uh, having a, a presentation there, and I really look forward to seeing you again there, Jay. Likewise. Well, good. Thank you very much, Gregory. And uh, we'll, we will keep track of what's going on at Millrock. We'll be watching for those press releases. We'll be watching for those long intersections of copper and gold. Thank you so much for being with us. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and next week's guests. Don't go away. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. 
The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. I've recently recommended Northern Free Gold to my subscribers because its nearly 6 million gold equivalent ounce resource can lead to a major rise in its share price. The company's Yukon project is in a politically safe jurisdiction, far from population centers, and it is advantaged with road access and nearby electricity. A large deposit and a vision of positive economics should make Northern Free Gold an acquisition target. The potential upside, in my view, for these shares is major. Blue Sky Uranium is a leading pioneer in the exploration for uranium in the Patagonia region of Argentina. Their exploration success has attracted one of the world's largest multinational nuclear power companies to fully fund Blue Sky's exploration programs. Argentina is very focused on nuclear to provide for their energy needs, yet they do not currently produce the required uranium to feed the reactors. Blue Sky has opened up a new frontier for exploration for uranium in Argentina with an objective of supplying both domestic and and international markets. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, just with a couple of closing thoughts on today's show. I really did enjoy uh, talking to everyone today, but uh, Dominic Frisbee, for sure. Uh, poor Dominic had to jump through hoops to get on the show. There was some misunderstanding about the time. Apparently, the British changed their uh, their clock. Uh, but Dominic uh, came on, and I'm really looking forward to having him on again sometime in the near future. Uh, he is really... Um, He's really terrific. Uh, I really enjoyed him, um, and uh, and he didn't even get a chance to crack a joke. Well, there's nothing too funny about the global economy these days, so it wouldn't have been appropriate, I suppose. Gene Epstein talking about GDP uh, and the accounting issues were very important, very interesting. I think that Gene Epstein is very is not very quick to uh, to to look for. Um, uh, let's say conspiracy ideas for sure. He is pretty mainstream, uh, writing for Barons as he does. Uh, but uh, interesting, I thought some of his comments he had on uh, how the use of military spending was uh, apparently used to make GDP look better than it might have been, if the, depending on the timing, perhaps. Uh, John Butler, always interesting things to talk to John about today, talking about sort of the geopolitics and how that sort of melds in with the gold and the uh, and the changes that are going on economically, how economics ultimately has everything to do with uh, uh, with um, with money uh, economic with with geopolitical strength and power ultimately 
uh, one of the questions I didn't get to ask him, I really would have liked to have asked him as well as Dominic, uh, can the United States continue to afford to spend more money on its military than the next 14 countries combined? I think not. Uh, and, and yet uh, a Romney presidency uh, would, in, in theory at least, uh, look to trump uh, anything Mr. Obama spent and, and more. Uh, we will see. I, I agree very much with Dominic uh, that uh, the American people are going to be losers no matter who wins this election because the main issues that are really important are not being talked about. And that main issue, I believe, I, I sincerely believe and agree with Dominic, that it, as long as we continue to print money and use it, the powers that be use it to enslave the common folks, to to reallocate wealth from the people uh, that actually create the wealth to the uh, people that control the system, uh, then, uh, you know, things are not going to get better. And the unfortunate thing is the left thinks they can just have laws passed. They think, as Dominic said, the left thinks the government is the answer when, in fact, the government is probably the biggest culprit in the whole in the whole um, scheme because the government goes out and passes laws that uh, that benefit the crony capitalist uh, or crony capitalist as Gene Epstein likes to call them. Well, we are just about out of time. Uh, I, I think uh, my engineer is telling me we have one minute left. Uh, next week we're going to have a really interesting show as well. Uh, I'm going to have James Turk and Robert Prechter. Well, they're not going to be with me live, but we are going to do uh, we're going to. Re- we're going to play a debate that the two of them had um, at goldmoney.com. We're, with the permission, uh, we are going to uh, play that next week. And then I'm going to have Mish Shedlock on. Well, Turk and Prechter will argue or discuss debate, I should say, because they're both gentlemen. Uh, they're going to talk about uh, inflation with James Turk being a hyperinflationist and Robert Prechter believing that we are ready for something south of 1,000 on the Dow and a deflationary depression that would make the 1930s look like a, uh, a Sunday school picnic, as some people say. Mish Shedlock, uh, much more like A. Gary Schilling, is a moderate deflationist, and he's going to come on to present his views on the deflation side as well. I'm not sure that we will get a, a person to stand counter Mish next week because Mish uh, really likes to talk, and I'm not sure the other person could get a word in edgewise. So we might have somebody coming on on the inflation side the following week or sometime in the near future uh, to counter Mish's views. The main thing I think you need to realize is that the financial system is a mess. The real price of gold is rising dramatically, has been rising since Lehman Brothers. Mining company profits, the senior guys are doing extremely well. Watch the gold sector. I believe that we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining shares, but you have to be careful. Uh, the project generator model that Gregory Breischer just talked about that the company he runs is that's the kind of thing I think investors should be looking at. Uh, mutual funds perhaps is another way. Sandstorm is another way. Uh, it's, it's difficult. You have to be careful. But this is a very good time, I think, to be buying gold shares. We are out of time. I want to thank Casey Trump, my, produ- uh, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer. Look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.